There's always been war, but when did frontline healthcare workers get targeted for attack? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. You may have heard something about Doctors Without Borders being targeted and killed in recent years. In previous times, such shocking stories would cause a worldwide outcry. Today, these stories have become lost in and ignored in all the firehose torrent of 24-7 news. The fact is, between 2016 and 2020, there were more than 4,000 recorded acts of violence against healthcare in conflicts around the globe. And it's not slowing down. How do we get to this place where such once unthinkable inhuman acts become routine? And it's not just happening in places like Myanmar and Africa. Here in America, healthcare workers who were once saluted for saving lives in the COVID-19 outbreak are now being issued panic buttons and ditching their scrubs before going out in public to avoid harassment. Such behavior, once unthinkable, could it be just the latest tactic in political strife? Could it be that the surge of attacks on healthcare workers worldwide is simply a logical extension of war? How is it that political and military leaders evade their legal obligations to protect healthcare in war? Have we now become that complacent? Is it too late to check this descent into inhuman barbarism? With us today is Leonard Rubenstein, author of the new book, Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. Leonard Rubenstein, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. And thank you for having me. Leonard Rubenstein is a professor and director of the Program on Human Rights and Health in Conflict at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. In 2011, he founded and now chairs the Safeguarding Health in Conflict Coalition, a group of 40 humanitarian human rights and health provider organizations working at the national and global levels that seeks to reduce attacks on and interference with health workers patients, facilities, and transports. Leonard was previously president of Physicians for Human Rights and is a recognized global expert on violence against healthcare. Just that phrase, violence against healthcare, just frankly shocks me. I guess I'm old-fashioned, I'm so 20th century. Well, again, thanks for being with us. You do a lot of work related to promoting the goals of doctors in dangerous areas. It's an ages-old, always highly respected vocation. But this is your first book. I believe this publication is the result of years of exposure to the unexpected level of violence against healthcare workers beginning in the 1990s for you in Bosnia. What did you learn from that experience and what made it so compelling to you that, to write a book about? Well, that's, that's a great question. And I'm like most people in that 
until I got close to the violence, I was really quite unaware, unaware of its extent and its effects. Uh, in Bosnia, I had gone in, in 1996 to release a report that an organization I had just joined, Physicians for Human Rights, was releasing. And I learned of the stories of what doctors and their patients were going through. First, I should say in Sarajevo, the hospitals were full of pock marks and shells, and their windows had all been blown out with blue sheeting. And I heard the story of a pediatrician named Emma Zebesic, uh, who was in a neonatal ward with babies and incubators mm -hmm. when she was warned that shelling was about to begin. She couldn't believe that that was going to happen. But she moved the babies next door to another hospital just in time before her unit was blown up. But the other hospital was also hit, and they lost electricity, they lost heat, it was winter, and nine of the babies did not survive the night. And it was shocking that these needless deaths occurred, despite the fact that for 150 years, attacks on any aspects of healthcare and conflicts have been banned right. by international law. And that's what started me on, on, on this journey, that uh, it turned out not to be an anomaly, not to be an exception, that almost wherever there are wars, there are attacks on healthcare, sometimes for strategic reasons, sometimes from convenience, sometimes because the protections the law requires are simply not implemented. Mm. And you talk about the old law, the 150 years old law, and as regular listeners to this show know, I, I am somewhat obsessed with World War One, <laughs> And I know it was standard practice back then to give medical aid to the people you had been trying to kill as soon as they were captured. It was just, it, that's what happened. Of course you do that. The first Geneva Convention protected soldiers wounded in battle and their caregivers. Tell us, please, about that historic agreement, how it, how it came about, and in what ways it worked and in what ways it was proved to be too narrow. Back in the 19th it was, century, yeah. It, it was an incredibly landmark. It was 1864 uh, that the convention was adopted. It was a product of a man named Henri Dunant, a Swiss humanitarian, who happened to upon a battle uh, in northern Italy with tens of thousands of soldiers uh, where Napoleon III was fighting the Austrian army and others. And he came across the terrible sight of wounded and sick soldiers, wounded soldiers uh, dying on the battlefield. And because it, there were no protections for rescuers, uh, no one could attend to them. And Many died of thirst. They were in agony. Even the next morning, they were unattended. And he urged that they be protected and their caregivers be protected. And it was an incredible breakthrough. It was really the first uh, international treaty to, to, go, uh, to govern the conduct of war in any respect. And uh, it focused on the wounded and sick. So it was an incredible breakthrough. Uh, at the time, it only applied to wounded soldiers, but over the 
generations. It extended to uh, civilians, civilian hospitals, civilian wounded. It extended not just to wars between states, but to civil wars. It was extended not only to prevent intentional attacks and violence against the wounded and sick and health facilities, but to require specific protections, uh, such as targeting that distinguishes between a civilian and a military object to limit collateral damage. So the protections have gotten stronger and stronger over time, but what's been consistent from the beginning have been violations. You mentioned World War One; hospital ships were torpedoed in World yeah. War One. Um, in, in Ethiopia, under the war, Mussolini uh, uh, started the um, uh, hospitals with huge red crosses were bombed by then new air power. Of course, there was strategic bombing and incendiary bombing in the Second World War. Oh, yeah. and, 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 of course, Korea and Vietnam. And ever since, in wars in the 90s and early 2000s, it's been consistent over time, despite a lot of effort to, to secure compliance. But this, it was only in the last 10 years that this issue really got on the international agenda at all. And it still only has a minor place, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, to make people aware of the problem and what could be done. Interesting. So if I heard you right, this kind of horrible stuff attacking uh, places with red crosses has been going on a long time, but it's only in the last 10 or so years that, that we've been aware of that. That that surprises me, I must say. Yes, it surprised me too. And I remember how stunned I was in those early years when I started doing reports uh, in the 90s on Chechnya and in Kosovo and in other parts of the world, how little traction there was and how uh, the media didn't cover the issues. Um, and certainly UN agencies paid little attention. Uh, it's, it's only recently that it has gotten the attention. And even then, uh, we haven't made the progress and protection that we need to. Well, I'm I'm old enough to remember uh, the TV show Mash when they had uh, you know the the big red cross out there, and I got the sense as somebody watching it. Now, granted, it's fiction <laughs> that once they had that red cross out there, that they would be safe from intentional attack. Wow! I, it... Yes, that's right. Um, Mash was an example of how it's supposed to work. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but not what actually happens so often in the world. I should say that there's some compliance. It's not as though every combatant throws out the Geneva Conventions and and, and just wantonly attacks healthcare. But it happens enough uh, that uh, thousands of people are killed, and of course the reverberating reverberating effects are enormous when you destroy a hospital. What happens six months later when there's an obstetric emergency? When you kill vaccinators, hundreds of thousands of kids don't get their polio and, and measles vaccinations for a period of time. So the effects are long lasting. It's not just the deaths and injuries at the time. Yeah, and it's 
it's not like you're targeting combatants and, and military installations and factories that make the stuff. One is targeting the general population, which I guess is, is something relatively new. And we can, we'll talk about that as we eventually wind our way up to uh, the Second World War. But back to the to 19th century, philosophers have long wrestled with questions regarding the justice of going to war, but they didn't pay a lot of attention to the moral constraints on the conduct of the war. In the 19th century, philosophers and military leaders looked closely at questions of morally acceptable behavior by combatants. Two thinkers from that period you highlight are uh, Francis Lieber and Henri Dunan. How did their theories about the protection of healthcare in war influence influence us to this day? You know, I mentioned uh, Dunan a few moments ago that he uh, was really the father of the Geneva Conventions, which basically say uh, that there's a principle of humanity that we treat all people who are suffering unnecessarily as common human beings, fellow human beings, and they should be entitled to treatment and care no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. They are not in war when they're wounded and they should be protected. And that's what's influenced the Geneva Conventions. One of the things my book highlights is a focus on the other man you mentioned, Francis Lieber, who is a brilliant theorist uh, very erudite, intellectual uh, friends with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and mm. uh, Ale- Alexis de Tocqueville and many other uh, notables of his time. And he had a different attitude about war. He thought, on the one hand, there shouldn't be gratuitous cruelty. You shouldn't execute people who were prisoners uh, when they were in your custody. But he thought it was legitimate to hurt civilians, bomb or shell hospitals, uh, in order to um, end a just war more quickly. And he was writing during the American Civil War. He was Uh anti-slavery, and he thought it was an incredibly moral and just cause, as we all do. And he therefore believed that you could suspend the protections in order to win quickly. And we've... And he actually wrote a code uh, for the Union Army uh, that President Lincoln uh, signed off on just before the Battle of Gettysburg. And he had an enormous amount of influence. And he did think there were limits uh, to war, conduct in war, but he had these exceptions. And the problem is that the exceptions can swallow the rule. Everyone thinks their war is just. Everybody thinks that they want to win quickly. That's one of the goals. So it gets to be very open-ended. And that's why the Geneva Conventions rejected that thinking entirely. Over 150 years, that thinking has never been adopted. In fact, it's been rejected time and time again. But when you look at what happens, I think in in the wars, what you, what I think is going on is that they are adopting the combatants or adopting that kind of thinking. That is Lieber's thinking that ending a just war quickly warrants violence against hospitals, uh, against civilians. And we saw that in the Civil War, of course. 
Oh, we've seen that in so many different wars. When uh, gas was first introduced in the First World War, the whole it was sold as a way to end the war quickly, and you know, you know, uh, uh, terror bombing is sold as a war as a, as a way to end wars quickly. It goes on and on and on, and people, you know, want the war to end quickly, so they ratchet it up hugely. Fascinating logic, I must say. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the targeting of healthcare workers in war. Our guest today has written a book about it, Leonard Rubinstein. His new book is called Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. And I bet, well, when people become doctors and medical care workers, they don't expect to be in peril, for their lives to be in peril. But then again, going into war, yeah, it's, I suppose it's it just comes with the territory. And as, obviously, I'm much more familiar with the First World War than the Second World War. But I only, I, I, I only recently learned that because precision bombing of war-related targets, factories, and the like, frankly, proved too difficult for pilots, American pilots, Allied pilots. Carpet bombing of cities and civilian centers became an acceptable tactic. Fire bombing of Tokyo and Dresden rivaled any atomic bombs devastation of non-combatants. What, what changes were made to the Geneva Conventions to address those problems after the Second World War, and where did the gaps persist? You're right that the Second World War was terrible in the use of strategic bombing and indiscriminate bombing of cities. And after the war, when the Geneva Conventions went through a major revision in 1949, there were efforts to prohibit that kind of attack. But because uh, the United States was the only nuclear power at the time, it opposed any limit on bombing that would kill huge numbers of civilians. And it wasn't until after the Vietnam War in 1977 that the Geneva Conventions were finally changed again to, to outlaw those kinds of attacks so that today indiscriminate bombing is a, a violation and happily we see that the united states at least and other western powers tend not to do that anymore they although there have been many civilian casualties from airstrikes in afghanistan uh, for example most of them have been mistakes some of them terrible terrible mistakes uh, some of them gross negligence, but for some uh, countries like uh, Western uh, powers, uh, those 1977 changes had an effect. On the other hand, uh, in the war in Yemen, where the United States actually supported Saudi Arabia, um, the targeting was um, an afterthought, so that mm. uh, the Saudis basically destroyed the health system in a very poor country, Yemen, uh, because they didn't bother to comply with the rules about distinguishing between military and civilian uh, targets. And here, the United States was culpable or yes. complicit yes. by selling the arms that made it possible. So it's a really mixed story. Well, and, and the war in Yemen, it, it 
doesn't get a lot of headlines, but it's just an incredible humanitarian uh, disaster. And and you've written extensively about that, and that Saudi Arabia generally did not target hospitals. Its bombing did destroy an already incredibly fragile health system. As you say, it's an, a just unbelievably poor country. And Saudi Arabia gets tremendous support from the U.S. The U.S. supplies so much of the Saudi weapons and the weapons delivery systems. Is They're destroying the, the health system such as it is. What about the, the legal and moral culpability of the United States in this? Well, I think it's very culpable. Uh, just to give you another sense of what happened in Yemen, uh, because of the destruction of water infrastructure on the one hand and uh, the health infrastructure on the other hand, uh, two million people um, had uh, um, were subjected to cholera, the largest cholera outbreak in the world, as far as we know. And that's only the beginning. The ability to deal with COVID in Yemen is severely compromised. Uh, so the, the effects are just uh, enormous. And children are dying because uh, they're not, they're dying of malnutrition and there's not sufficient resources to address the malnutrition needs of the children. The humanitarian crisis is, is kind of beyond belief. So what is the U.S. role in all this? From the very beginning, uh, and through two administrations, the Obama administration and the Trump administration, uh, the arms sales that enabled these bombings, including mid-air refueling so that right. the planes could look for target, continued. And uh, there were many problems with those those uh, arms sales. There were restrictions on selling arms to perpetrators of war crimes. There are provisions in the Geneva Conventions that governments have an obligation not only to respect the Geneva Conventions, but to ensure respect for them. And these uh, obligations were so narrowly uh, interpreted, and I should say not just by the United States government, but by the British government, mm -hmm. uh, that they just continued and fought efforts in Congress and in, in Britain and the courts to stop the sales. And it's only this past year that the arms sales uh, are going to be halted for a war that began in 2015. And within three weeks, uh, it was clear that civilians were being uh, hit by these airstrikes. Well, I guess it's, uh, you know, trying to justify that. I, I don't even know what the heck that war is about. It seems to be... Uh that uh, the Saudis and the Iranians are bitter enemies, and so they're both using <laughs> using the people of, of Yemen. But we won't go too deeply into that. There's so many other examples of doctors and medical facilities and medical workers being specifically targeted. And the, the when people get destroyed, when there's absolute incredible devastation— they get angry. They get angry. After the American Civil War, uh, the South was devastated, and they took out their anger on easily identifiable people of African-American descent. And, you know, it was, a, as someone called it, a typhoon of terror. And nowadays, the extreme militarism of North Korea seems mysterious to most people. But what, what 
we may have ignored and forgotten that you know they they haven't forgotten that the US destroyed some 1000 hospitals and killed about a million civilians which was nearly a third of the entire population of North Korea in Vietnam as well saturation bombing campaigns and the use of napalm inflicted horrendous damage on the civilian population yet you say those campaigns may not have actually violated the Geneva Conventions. Say more about that, please. Well, this goes back to what I spoke about in about the 1949 uh, revisions, which did not prohibit uh, the use of indiscriminate bombing. All it did was uh, prohibit intentional targeting or destruction uh, or attacks on health care. So... In Vietnam and in North Korea, um, the Defense Department said we're not violating any, violating any laws. And in fact, in Vietnam, some major anti-war scholars agreed with them. Uh, and that's why the changes in 1977 were so important. And in fact, those changes are was became so influential that even governments and, of course, armed groups that are not permitted to sign international mm -hmm. treaties, uh, they are bound by them. It's called customary law, which means that you're bound even if you haven't agreed to it. Uh, so um, it was a milestone, but the, the record of the years between uh, the Second World War and the end of the Vietnam War uh, was catastrophic for people, uh, civilians, and for uh, people in need of health care with the use of incendiary bombing, as you mentioned, napalm. Um, and the strategy that, as I see it, was designed to get the war over as quickly as possible by destroying the population. Um, in most of these cases, it didn't even work. Right. There's no, there's no evidence that these kinds of tactics work. In fact, there's been a lot of scholarship on the Second World War where the strategic bombing of Dresden and many, many other cities had no impact on ending the war. And I think about the terror bombing of, of London uh, and Vietnam. It only made people fight harder. <laughs> it, 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 it only, uh, you know, strengthened their, their vertebrae to, to stand up to this horror. You, you could see who the bad guys were. So the 1977 uh, agreement, how does that affect wars these days? I mean, right now, as we know, in, in the former British colony of Burma, Myanmar, there are stories of atrocities against medical workers. They occasionally pop up into the news. Are the military rulers there specifically targeting medical workers and why? And what about that? Is that 77 agreement uh, not relevant to that? One thing we haven't talked about so far is the violence inflicted on healthcare in situations that don't amount to war, but or take place in politically volatile situations. Yes. And Myanmar is a perfect example. It was a coup back earlier in the year, uh, and the civilian government was overturned. There were many arrests. And 
what's of course very important to understand is that even if the Geneva Conventions don't apply because it's not an armed conflict, human rights principles and laws apply. And the outcome or the protections are really the same. It took a long time for human rights law to recognize that the protections are really equivalent. And what happened in in Myanmar is that doctors and nurses were in the lead or among the leaders in the protests uh, against the coup. And in response, the Myanmar uh, coup, the military government, has arrested hundreds of uh, health workers. Many have arrest warrants uh, outstanding against them. They've occupied hospitals. Uh, and what, they're, what they've done also is so severely impede response to COVID-19 there mm. that the epidemic there is getting out of control, that they've completely undermined the health system's ability to deal with COVID. And of course, that has regional implications as well. So sometimes people say that, well, doctors shouldn't act politically like yeah. they did in Myanmar. Uh, but there's a big difference between doing your job as a physician and engaging in political activity that doesn't involve um, your medical work. So you can switch, <laughs> you can express your opinion, your free speech and rights of assembly like any other citizen. Um, but they were targeted for expressing those rights, even though they complied with their ethical obligations to treat everybody in need. Yeah, well, doctors are still human beings. Imagine that, still citizens. What a concept. And one other place that, you know, there's so many wars around the war in Syria going on 10 years now with more than 600 attacks on hospitals and hundreds of health workers arrested for providing care to uh, Assad's enemies. You acknowledge that many of these health workers are, in fact, as you said in, in Myanmar, opposed to the current regime, either tacitly or explicitly. Should they still be protected even though, should, or should they be ex expect to be vulnerable because they're not neutral? Syria is the worst case. It's the case where strategic attacks, targeted attacks on hospitals in particular, have been going on in the entirety of this war for 10 years. And you mentioned 600 hospitals hit. And those hospitals were hit deliberately. These were not accidents. This wasn't like Yemen, where it was just sloppy targeting. These were specific targeted attacks on hospitals with completely devastating uh, impacts on the civilian population uh, and on the health workforce. About a thousand health workers have been killed. Many, many have fled for understandable reasons. Um, and some of the doctors, certainly, and the nurses and other health workers, are opposed to the Assad regime that is doing most of the 
the bombing and shelling, uh, although many of them wanted just to do their jobs and they happened to live in Aleppo or other cities that were attacked. And they weren't particularly politically involved. But what the regime did is deemed anyone who was living in an area controlled by the opposition to be a target. Anyone, a civilian or a doctor. So they didn't really care what they thought. Mm. Needless to say, as, as you point out, when you're being bombed, you start developing opinions that you're against the people who are bombing you. <laughs> um, really? So, but but they they're entitled to protection under all circumstances, no matter what their political views. And instead, what Assad and his cronies have done is deem everyone to be an enemy, and in yeah. fact, a terrorist. They they are using the excuse of terrorism, and we can talk more about terrorism if you like. Uh, they, de- they deemed everybody to be a terrorist, so they would attack them. In fact, I had a student who was arrested back in 2011. He made it to the United States, eventually um, escaping Syria, and he became my student at Johns Hopkins, and he he was arrested. Ten years later, um, his mother, also a physician, actually an OBGYN, was arrested for allegedly treating um, the enemies of the state uh, back in, in the same period. Mm. So here we have a father and his uh, a mother and son, both arrested ten years apart, both of whom were doing their ethical duty, um, and yet were arrested. Absolutely amazing, and and the the inhumanity of it is just uh, you know it's something we just we prefer not to look at, but but it's there, and it goes on and on. Just in case you may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Leonard Rubinstein, who's got a new book out, Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. The United Nations, do they have any power? I mean, where where do they stand in all this? Is there any leverage? I mentioned uh, early in our our discussion that until very recently, the UN hadn't paid much attention to the issue. Uh, about 10 years ago, the World Health Organization, which of course is the global body that tries to coordinate health response, finally uh, had a resolution that it would collect data on attacks on healthcare. Before that, there was no effort even to systematically know what's going on. And when you don't know what's going on, you're not likely to do anything about it. And that took years to get off the ground, and it finally did about three years ago. And now we have some reporting. It's really the first time. But the real power lies in the UN Security Council, which can do everything from right. uh, grant access in a war zone to impose sanctions on perpetrators to refer uh, to. Uh, perpetrated to the International Criminal Court. And in 2016, they finally adro- adopted a resolution condemning attacks on healthcare and uh, uh, requiring a whole number, a large number of steps by governments to address the problem, to reform their military practices, to change their laws, to conform to the Geneva Convention and human rights law to protect healthcare. 
to stop selling arms to perpetrators, to investigate violations, hold perpetrators accountable. But in the wake, two things have not happened. Number one, governments around the world have not acted on the resolution. They've basically said, oh, this is wonderful. We agree with everything this resolution says. It was passed unanimously, but they haven't acted, right. acted to implement it. And the second thing with respect to uh, accountability, I mentioned they could refer to the uh, cases to the International Criminal Court. There's a veto by permanent members of the mm -hmm. Security Council to any action, and Russia has repeatedly uh, vetoed efforts to bring perpetrators from Syria before the International Criminal Court. So we basically have had international paralysis, one by a neglect and omission, and one by commission, that is uh, the refusal to pursue accountability. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the phrase toothless tiger comes into mind. It's it's very difficult to do. And the, uh, you know, International Court at the Hague, so many things could be, and in my opinion, should be brought there, but they're not because of the political power of the countries involved. I want to get back to what you, you talked about terrorism, the concept of terrorism. You know, it used to be that, that the word communist, if somebody was called a communist, they were less than human. Anything could be done to them. They're just the bad guys. Now you just substitute the word terrorism, throw it in there. Um, and back 9-11, when the Office of Homeland Security was declared in its wake, it sent chills to traditional civil libertarians throughout the United States including me, quite frankly, how has the national security priority of def preventing terrorism in recent decades impacted health workers? What about that concept of terrorism being used? If you go back to the Geneva Conventions, and I mentioned the principle of humanity, that everyone who is wounded or sick is entitled to care no matter who you are, that was a foundational idea that even enemies are entitled to treatment and care, and that's been reaffirmed year after year after year, decade after decade. And yet, as anti-terrorism or counter-terrorism uh, came to be strong, especially after 9-11, as, as a policy, a new idea came to be, which basically follows from the thinking of Francis Lieber, that enemies, terrorists, were not entitled to care. That you wanted to prevent terrorist attacks, and if you offer them care, they might provide, they might go back and commit a terrible act. As I said, that's completely contrary to the ideas that are embodied in the Geneva Conventions and human rights law. But our law now says that it is a criminal act for a doctor or any health worker to provide care or offer care, not just provide it, but offer care to a terrorist or someone or a terrorist organization. And of course, those the definition of a right. terrorist and terrorist organization is very flexible. And I'll give you a, an, an example. Back in the 1990s, during the war in Chechnya, there was a surgeon by the name of Hassan Bayez, who was treating wounded from both sides. He saved some uh, Russian soldiers by 
his surgery. He saved a Chechen rebel leader. And as a result, he was targeted by both sides. Mm. He managed to escape Chechnya. Human rights groups got him to the United States. And he was granted asylum in this country because of his legitimate fear of harm and persecution in his country. Now, he probably would have been denied asylum because he might have been subject to criminal prosecution because he provided care to someone who was deemed a terrorist. And it's a very frightening change in our values, uh, especially since this is so central to the laws of war as uh, as they've developed. And there's been tremendous resistance to conforming uh, our counterterrorism laws to the values and requirements of the Geneva Conventions and Human Rights Law. Yeah, just slap a label terrorist on somebody, and if you help that terrorist or terrorist organization, and I have been amazed at some organizations which are called terrorist for helping uh, not positions of power, you know, who are (laughs) struggling in a war. And counterterrorist law can be irrational and counterproductive, you say. But how have some countries learned important lessons from this and then reformed their approach to counterterrorism as they've figured out the costs? There have been some examples. Um, The most interesting one, of course, it's not likely to be in effect much longer, but Afghanistan under the prior government, um, which, of course, was fighting a war and was subjected to terrible terrorist attacks, including ambulances that exploded outside a hospital and killed many people. People, The government of Afghanistan knew about terrorism, but they nevertheless passed a law that said that doctors were immune from, from prosecution or arrest. Uh, for doing their ethical duty. And so you have examples, you have some other examples from uh, New Zealand and other countries. Um, And the real tragic aspect of these laws is there's no evidence whatsoever that the criminalization of healthcare does anything to prevent terrorism. It's wrong morally, it's wrong legally, but it's also kind of absurd, kind of empirically in that there's no evidence that it makes any difference. Boy, sometimes it's hard to learn the most obvious things right before you. And, you know, the United States is not immune to attacks on doctors and medical care workers. Uh, The most recent stuff is the, uh, you know, the people who have been heroes the uh, uh, people on the front lines against uh, COVID-19. But back, got to go back in history a little bit, because that's the way I work. (laughs) Back in 2009, Dr. George Tiller, who was a physician who performed late-term abortions, was assassinated in Kansas. Healthcare was then and still remains politicized on issues relative to reproductive choices very politicized. It's even hotter now than it was back then, I think. So here we are in 2021. And this from the Associated Press, more than a year after U.S. healthcare workers were saluted 
for saving lives in the COVID-19 outbreak and celebrated with nightly clapping from windows and balconies, some are being issued panic buttons in case of assault and ditching their scrubs before going out in public for fear of harassment. Across the country, doctors and nurses in the front lines against coronavirus are dealing with hostility, threats, and violence from patients angry over safety rules designed to keep the scourge from spreading. End of the AP story. Since war is a form of extreme political violence and the U.S., these days is nearly at war with itself. What about this development? It's a very important and disturbing development. Uh, as I said, when we're talking about Myanmar, um, in situations of political violence short of war, uh, the violence against healthcare is also present. We saw this all over the world in the COVID uh, pandemic. And in addition to the uh, intimidation of frontline health workers responding to COVID. Dozens and dozens, maybe more than a hundred, I'm not sure what the numbers of public health officials who are trying to deal with the pandemic have been intimidated, yes. threatened. Uh, and we have other kind of political violence directed at uh, health workers he here. For example, during the George Floyd uh, uh, protests yeah. uh, there were in new york in portland there were medics on the scene because tear gas was being used some uh, police officers were beating demonstrators and as is common medics appear to provide first aid and immediate care to those in need but in some places they these medics who wore red crosses mm -hmm. or some kind of special bibs identifying them as health workers, they too were attacked. So we're not immune here from this kind of violence. And and yet here too, in this, in this realm, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. That there is something special about the values of a country in protecting the ability for people in need to get health care and the ability of health workers to be protected. It, it just, I, I, I never would have thought this would be the case here in the uh, 20th, 21st century. It's just, uh, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and the medical community recognizes not just the, the, the wounds that bleed, but they recognize invisible wounds. I wonder if you could say a bit about the moral distress and the despair that health workers themselves often endure silently. How does that impact the delivery of health care that we generally take for granted? There's a myth out there that the health workers who uh, are out there on the front line are selfless and they're happy to be martyrs because they're <laughs> doing this extraordinary work. But they're human beings. <laughs> Most of them are there because they feel an obligation to help people or who are wounded or sick, uh, even at risk to themselves. They're, they're courageous, but they are human beings and they suffer enormously from this violence and the constraint on their ability to provide care because of the violence. I've spoken to dozens of, of health workers in Syria and they not only are at risk and feel 
feel at risk from uh, the this airstrikes, but they feel guilty because they can't save people. Uh, one doctor told me he felt he felt distraught when parents begged for surgery to save their severely wounded child, but he had to refuse them because they just didn't have the resources. Right. Or in another case, uh, a doctor said, you want to save as many people as you can. But it was the most painful moment to feel that people have to die because you can't serve all in need. And they're, they're, the impediments to to the their ability to save people had to do with the consequences of the attacks. They didn't have electricity or they didn't have supplies or they didn't have enough people or uh, the number of wounded people was so great. So they suffer. And I think we've seen that here too in, in the U.S. The, the, the stresses, yes. the anxiety, the depression, even sometimes suicide yes. of health workers responding to COVID. And if you, that's in a, it's a, that's in a relatively nonviolent environment. And if you imagine what it's like in Syria, where the, 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 the violence is, you know, astronomically greater, you can imagine how health workers suffer. And there's just not enough solidarity with these health workers, mm. and there should be. Boy, there should be. And, and you know, the applauding and uh, everything we had, and most of us, I think, still have for the uh, COVID frontline workers, it's 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 very important, and, and we need to, I think, you know, build that into healthcare workers in general, and it's a very, very difficult situation. And, you know, I know vet, even veterinarians, you know, they have a hard time, and, you know, they're human. When when animals die, when favorite beloved pets die, it's really, really hard on them. And we expect them to do that and, and be cold. They're not cold. They're still alive. And another aspect of, of you know, the, the full tilt war that we're in these days is that you know, keeping it's good for politicians to to have a a war tactic where there are no none of our boots on the ground, as it were. And those injuries, moral injuries of men and women who made direct bombing of civilian targets by drones. It's some tough stuff. And yeah, it's part of the twentieth century twenty first century war tactics. The the injuries of war aren't just combined to I mean, confined to direct combatants and and it is uh, with healthcare workers the destruction is caused by politics is is that part of the picture that you and I are discussing the the moral injuries that uh, people who you know are ordered to and direct the uh, the bombing of like wedding parties and stuff oh of course um, uh, those it's moral injuries occur on both sides the, the victims and even the perpetrators we know yes. what it's like uh, for how many soldiers have come back and uh, have uh, either PTSD or other yes. uh, health issues and mental health issues uh, that flow from what they've seen what they've experienced and what they have done and it's a huge huge Problem, and I think, uh, I think the Defense Department, the VA, is trying to address that. But the answer, of course, has to be 
what happens out in the world, <laughs> uh, not just what happens in the aftermath. Uh, and uh, uh, these injuries, both moral and traumatic, uh, are, are consequences of actions that could be changed if we complied with the rules. Complying with rules, what a concept. And obviously this is a very, very distressing picture that we're painting here. You also feel there's some reason for hope. For instance, some groups, including the Taliban, can be influenced to refrain from attacks on health care. How does that happen? What forms of pressure from what entities seem to have the greatest effect? It varies enormously by context and war. The Taliban, of course, as we know, had the objective of taking power. <laughs> we see that yeah, they did power it. every day. Yes. And they did it. Yeah. Um, and they had, in part, a hearts and minds strategy, just like uh, we did at one point in the war, that they wanted to show the population that they could uh, make sure health care uh, was provided. So, so they not completely, but often uh, allowed local health clinics to operate. Um, and uh, even if they were funded by the, by the Afghan government at the time. On the other hand, they didn't exactly, have, or even, even come close to complying with all the rules. Uh, they would threaten uh, health clinics if uh, if they didn't like their hiring practices or they didn't get the patronage they wanted and they would shut down clinics based on those threats. They would even kidnap some staff when they wanted to get their way. So there were a lot of uh, violations by the Taliban. But there was also pressure on them from places you wouldn't expect. For example, the UN had a human rights monitoring, civilian casualty monitoring or uh, reporting system in Afghanistan. And the Taliban were very sensitive to those reports. They would write written mm. responses. And although you could never say that the Taliban were in compliance with the Geneva Conventions, they made some efforts to maintain a credibility uh, with the population uh, by having some modicum of, of restraint. And even though it wasn't perfect, it probably made a difference um, in, in people's lives. So there are other examples where, where those kinds of pressures can work, and we just need a lot more of it. Public pressure does work. I know that certain powers that be have very successfully convinced Americans that we are powerless, but boy, we are not powerless. They know we're not powerless. And it is governments that have the greatest power to protect health care from violence. Um, and there is outrage at assaults on the health community, but many of the world's governments kind of sidestep their responsibilities. How might they be held more accountable? What can average citizens do? We are not powerless. The public pressure worked a little bit on the Taliban. What about here? That's right. We are not powerless. Uh, there are a lot of ways to uh, influence these policies, just like any other policies. And I think, for one thing, I think the medical community, the nursing community, um, the 
the public health community needs to speak out um, and have solidarity with their colleagues abroad, raise it as a visible issue. I think that citizens can demand that our government uh, adopt policies and practices that are consistent with our values. And that actually had some impact in the lobbying against continued arms sales to Yemen. So that's an example where those arms sales and the complicity went on for six years, but eventually the public pressure built sufficiently to stop them. So I think the strategies are pretty common. They're not unique to this issue. Of course, it would also help if our military and political leaders uh, stepped up and uh, did their duty. And there's not a lot of political cost to doing what needs to be done. And that's another terrible aspect of this, that it's not jeopardizing any uh, any policies. Uh, although, obviously, in the case of the arms sales I mentioned, the Saudis would have been unhappy uh, with a cutoff of arms sales. But, you know, what's the balance there? You know, the indiscriminate bombing of hospitals versus having uh, a better relationship with another government? Not two difficult choices. And I think most people, I don't know, maybe I'm a silly optimist, have uh, such morals and care about them, and we can do something about it. The book is called Perilous Medicine. What a concept, perilous medicine. The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War. Thank you, Leonard Rubenstein, author of that new book, for being with us today. And uh, yeah, it's good to end on, on a hopeful note that we can do something about it. Public pressure does work. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. And thank you for having me.